In this episode of 2036, the podcast. We know there's a huge disparity between underrepresented populations, minority populations, and the health disparity, of course, is one that has its roots in systemic racism. A lot of the diagnostic tools that are developed, unfortunately, have been developed in a way that have not included representations of different populations. So I talked about these molecular tests for identifying which breast cancer patients would benefit from chemotherapy or not. Well, a paper came out last year showing that these tests actually don't work in black women. And so what we've been doing is thinking about how can we be intentional and deliberate with AI so that we can start to identify specific patterns in populations wherein we can start to create more tailored, precise AI-based models for those particular populations. I am Dean Kimberly Jacob Ariola and it is a pleasure to interview Dr. Anat Madabushi as part of 2036 the podcast. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you Kimberly, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. You are among Emory's newest faculty members, so let me start by just welcoming you to Emory. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. We're thrilled for your research contributions and the exciting work you're doing in the AI.humanity space. Could you start by telling me a little bit about your career trajectory and how you landed here at Emory this past summer? Absolutely. Uh so by way of introduction, I think I should start by saying I'm an immigrant. I grew up in India. And the thing about growing up in India in the 90s was that um if you have an Indian mother, you really have two choices. You either become an engineer or you become a doctor. And unfortunately, I wasn't smart enough to make it to medical school. So I found my passion in biomedical engineering in India. Decided that I wanted to continue to work in this field. So I then came to the United States. I went to the University of Texas at Austin, got my master's in biomedical engineering. And during my master's, I got exposed to computer vision, which is the application of pattern recognition tools to imaging data to be able to make predictions. I then decided that I wanted to go to the University of Pennsylvania which had an excellent bioengineering program and so there I think it started to come together the passion of applying some of these computer vision ai tools to medical imaging data to now start to look at trying to predict the presence of diseases like cancer so could we look at an mri scan for instance and use these computer vision tools to identify subtle patterns that a human reader like a radiologist might not be able to appreciate or pick up one thing that did happen around that time was the fact that i ended up losing a very close aunt of mine to cancer to triple negative breast cancer and it was really heartbreaking but one of the things that i realized was that you know even though i was not going to be a physician and be able to treat people or patients with breast cancer i really had the opportunity with the kind of technologies that we were developing to provide more information right so if you look at a disease like breast cancer we know that the vast majority of women with breast cancer particularly if the breast cancer is identified early that they could successfully avoid chemotherapy they don't need the chemotherapy if the cancer is found early and in in certainly in the US the majority of breast cancers actually tend to be caught early because of screening and i started to realize that there was a huge potential 
to apply these AI tools to pathology images to be able to now predict as to whether a woman with breast cancer actually needs the chemotherapy or whether she could forego the chemotherapy and opt for surgery and hormonal therapy alone. And so that really started a journey where we developed a, a whole suite of algorithms to analyze breast pathology images, uh, showed that we could predict uh, in ways that were very comparable to very expensive molecular-based tests. The other piece of all of this was, again, given the fact that I came from India, I was particularly passionate about developing technologies that were going to work in low-middle-income countries. Because if I could predict from an image of a slide, whether you need chemotherapy or not, I could do this for pennies on the dollar compared to some of these molecular tests that cost $4,000. So this, I think, really set in motion, I think, for me, uh, my passion, not just on you know, innovating and doing research in AI, but really thinking from a translational perspective and particularly thinking about how these technologies could have an impact in a global context, particularly in in low and middle income countries. Anat, what you're saying is absolutely fascinating. Your work not only impacts mortality, it impacts quality of life. Now, you and your team applied AI to the diagnosis and treatment protocols for a range of diseases such as cancer, cardiovascular disease, and kidney disease, as well as ophthalmology. What do you think are the benefits of using AI in these ways more broadly? That's a great question, Kimberly. So in the United States, we have a real issue of financial toxicity. You take a disease like cancer, 40% of the adult population in the United States is going to be diagnosed with some form of cancer in their lifetime. We know that 42% of newly diagnosed cancer patients in the United States will lose their life savings, right? Many of them within one year of that early diagnosis. A lot of these treatments are very expensive. A lot of these treatments will cause financial toxicity. And unfortunately, a lot of these treatments don't work the majority of the time. You take a treatment like immunotherapy that won the Nobel Prize in medicine in 2018, and that has completely changed the landscape of how we treat cancer today. It's been fabulous. The problem is it only works 25% of the time. And it costs about $250,000 per patient per year. So if you do the math, if you take four patients that are being treated with immunotherapy, chances are $750,000 of every million dollars being spent on immunotherapy is going to result in ineffective uh, treatment or, or response. And so one of the things that we have been thinking a lot about is how can we use AI tools with CT scans, with MRI scans, with biopsy images to be able to make these predictions about who is going to respond to therapy versus who is not going to respond, who's not going to benefit. Because if we can tell in advance that they're not going to respond or benefit to those therapies, maybe they shouldn't be getting those therapies, both from the perspective of moving them on to the therapy that is going to work, but at the same time also keeping in mind the financial toxicity. Why would we want to have them subjected to uh, uh, this very, very expensive treatment that clearly is not going to be optimal for them, is not going to work for them. The other piece that our group is particularly passionate about is about addressing health disparities. You know, there's global health and making an impact in low middle income countries. But let's just talk about the United States. We know there's a huge disparity between underrepresented populations, minority populations, and the health disparity, of course, 
is one that has its roots in systemic racism, right? And we know that access to healthcare has significantly compromised mortality and health for African Americans in this country and, and Native Americans. Another piece of this is the fact that a lot of the diagnostic tools that are developed, unfortunately, have been developed in a way that have not included representations of different populations as these tests have been developed. So I talked about these molecular tests for identifying which breast cancer patients will benefit from chemotherapy or not. Well, a paper came out last year showing that these tests actually don't work in black women. And so what we've been doing is thinking about how can we start to identify specific patterns in populations wherein we can start to create more tailored, precise AI-based models for those particular populations. As an example, we showed in a paper a couple of years ago that looking at prostate cancer in black men versus white men, there were differences, very subtle differences that the AI was able to tease out. What was the implication of that? Well, the implication was that population agnostic model was simply not going to predict outcome in black men with prostate cancer. And so we actually created a tailored population-specific model for black men and showed that that model was way more accurate in predicting outcome and recurrence of prostate cancer. Similarly, we've actually recently shown that in uterine cancers, a cancer that disproportionately affects black women compared to white women in the United States, we can create population-tailored models that are more accurate in predicting risk of recurrence of uterine cancer in black women compared to a population-agnostic model. Now, some might be listening right now and struggling with this idea that race is a social construct, but you talked very deliberately and intentionally about the ways in which you could incorporate race into AI algorithms to ultimately improve the health of populations of color. Could you help listeners reconcile this? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, race is a socio-political legal construct, but we know that different populations that the disease is not the same, right? We know that a disease like triple negative breast cancer, the same disease that, uh, you know, killed my, my aunt uh, in India is, is a disease that affects Indian women and black women at a rate that's three times more than North American white women. And so in spite of the limitations of using race, it is useful insofar as helping to define populations that allow us to create more tailored AI models so that we can start to be more specific, more accurate, uh, so that we can get away from some of these problems that we're seeing with risk calculators today, where these risk calculators simply don't work in other populations. And so in spite of all those myriad limitations of this sociopolitical legal construct, uh, the benefit is that it is a surrogate. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a reasonable surrogate to be able to start to create these more tailored, accurate AI-based models. So I'm going to take a step back and ask you to delve into your research a little bit more. When you think about the ways in which you're committed to furthering AI research in medicine here at Emory. What do you expect to be the short and long-term results of your work? So, you know, Kimberly, for me, the big motivation in a place like Emory was the fact that, that here you had a top-tier university, biomedical research strong university, that also had the healthcare enterprise within that umbrella. 
And that's unique. And so to me, that represented a big opportunity. It represented an opportunity for me to come with my group to do the cutting edge research, but then to be able to immediately think about translation. Because it's one thing to do the research and to get the grants and publish the papers and all of that. But at the end of the day, we almost owe it, right, to the patients to be able to move these innovations and move these technologies into the clinical care, into the clinical continuum. So from a short to medium term goal, you know, my goal would be to take at least some of these algorithms, validate them, and really start to push them into the clinical workflow. So that's something very passionate about. That's really why we've come, you know, uh, myself, and I think we've come with 27 people. So that's a big reason why we've come. Wow. Well, we are excited that you and all 27 of your colleagues have joined. This is wonderful. I am just in awe of your passion for translation. Now, Emory has had a long commitment to finding better treatments for a range of different cancers. And you've talked very eloquently about how AI can help us develop better diagnostic procedures and treatments for cancer. But are there particular forms of cancer that lend themselves better to AI research and practices as compared to others? The problems that we've been focused on, I'd say over the last four to five years, have been lung and head and neck cancer. It's not because the other cancers don't have opportunities for application of AI. I think these are two particular cancers where, at least to me, it feels like there is an, a relatively immediate opportunity for impact. And some of the work we've been doing of both radiology scans as well as pathology scans has suggested that we can identify those subgroups of HPV-associated head and neck cancers where they truly have less aggressive disease and therefore could benefit from de-intensification. I've been amazed at Emory. I've had outreach from you know, oncologists in the lung cancer space, in the head and neck cancer space saying, you know, how can, can we start to think about prospective clinical trials where we can deploy these AI tools to start to think about de-intensification? Can we think about being able to predict whether the you know, patient is going to respond to the treatment or not? So when I see that kind of passion, when I see that the clinical community is entrepreneurial and willing to invoke and use these technologies to modulate their treatment paradigm for a patient, that's exciting because that's the opportunity to have impact in the short to medium term. Again, I want to be careful and repeat that I think the opportunities exist in other cancers. We're working in a number of other cancers, but lung and head and neck have just been two areas that you know we've really been focusing on over the last four to five years. Let me ask you this last question. What excites you most about the future of AI research at Emory University? So one of the things that drew me to Emory was this AI and humanity initiative, right? And this very bold enterprise to bring together AI across multiple different disciplines. I'm really excited to be talking to people in the business school, right? People who think about AI uh, with this sort of financial toxicity lens on and, you know, thinking about it from a different perspective or thinking about the ethics of AI or thinking about AI in the context of implementation and social justice. So I'm really excited about learning um, and, and working in multidisciplinary teams. And, and so that's really exciting. I think this opportunity to create a very diverse community across multiple different disciplines. And the more we interact, the more we work together, the more I think it's going to enrich the various different areas of investigation by AI. 
with your very interdisciplinary focus, you are very well poised to study AI as it relates to a range of different areas. It has been wonderful talking to you today. I appreciated this opportunity to get to know you and your work better. Thank you. Thank you so much. On the next episode of 2036, the podcast. So if you kind of think about privacy, it's essentially the flip side of personalization. We love the fact that we're sitting in the office and at five o'clock, your phone tells you, time to leave, got to go to the gym, because it knows every day that's what you do. And essentially that information is stored and therefore it is able to provide you a personalized recommendation. But that also means that Google knows and has information on that particular fact. And that may or may not be comfortable to some people. But the important thing here from a regulatory perspective is that we, the consumers, have control over what we give out, how much personalization we want to enjoy, and therefore how much privacy we're willing to actually give out. Join host Munir Megjani and business analytics professor Ramrat K. Chapala as they consider the opportunities and consequences of our highly personalized, data-driven future. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about 2036, Emory's campaign to transform the future, visit 2036.emory.edu.